This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. I'm going to ask you if you could just hold on, Children's Church folks. I'm going to lead us in prayer before we dismiss. Um, as Stacy said, it's been a momentous up and down week, and we just want to pause just as a congregation and thank the Lord uh, and praise him for um, particularly the decision that came down on Friday. And so if you would just join me in prayer, and then um, kiddos can be um, dismissed. So let's pray together. Lord, our hearts uh, praise you as the God who keeps your promises. And uh, we praise you with the psalmist who in Psalm 10 said, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Lord, I know there are some in this room Some may be watching online who remember when Roe v. Wade, that decision came down from the Supreme Court on January 22nd, 1973. And many have been praying and serving and giving to see that decision overturned ever since. Lord, we thank you for the the legacy of that that's happened at College Park Baptist Church and Baptist Church of the Redeemer and now University Park Baptist Church. And so, Lord, we praise you. We are so thankful that 49 years and five months and two days later, that decision was overturned. Lord, we lament the damage. We lament the loss of some 63 million children between those two decisions. But, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that hears and answers his people. You do justice for the fatherless and protect your little ones. And, Lord, you offer forgiveness for all through Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for the work of the Women's Pregnancy Center just down the street. And we know that in many ways their work is about to be perhaps under attack and scrutiny like never before. We pray that you would protect them and help us to continue to serve and support them. Help us to see, Lord, that the fight is in no ways over, that in many ways it's just beginning. And so we pray that you would give us strength for the days that lie ahead of us. Our prayer is that we would see a day in our country and in our world where abortion is not only illegal but unthinkable. And we know and understand that that kind of change that we are asking for, that we're longing for, won't come through legislation, but through the power of the gospel, the gospel of grace. And so, Lord, we pray that our focus and urgency to make disciples here in southwest Houston and to the ends of the earth would be stronger than it has ever been. We pray that our love and care for women in crisis, our eagerness to adopt and foster children, our support of children's ministries and families would all commend the gospel that we preach and teach all the more. And so, Lord, we pray that you would both raise up workers for the harvest and bring the harvest to your glory. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes now as we look to your word. Build us up in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now it's time for Children's Church. And so, uh, parents, if your uh, kiddos, if you're headed that way, uh, you'll want to head back there with Mr. Bart. And if you haven't already signed in your kids, please take a moment to do that. 
and you'll want to pick them up over in the fellowship hall at the conclusion of our time together. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to look at the first kind of half of this chapter together this morning. Let me read the first uh, 11 verses if you're following along with me. This is God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning we are entering into the last section of the book of Genesis. Chapters 37 to 50, and they're taken up with the story of Jacob's sons, and in particular, the story of Joseph. But this is not mainly about Joseph, or even mainly about the sons of Israel. This is a story about God, and the Bible is a record, a revelation of who God is, and and that's why we pray before we read it publicly and privately to ask God to give us the ability to understand it because it is spiritually discerned. It is from God, and therefore we need God to understand it and appreciate it for what it is. It is not a newspaper. It is not our Twitter feed. It is the mere Word of God or the very Word of God, and it's amazing, and it's wonderful. And instead of reading it, often the Bible reads us. And so if I were to summarize this last section of Genesis 37 to 50, I would do it just around the title or the theme of God's providence, God's providence. And so if you look up the word providence or think about what, for example, the the Westminster Shorter Catechism says about providence, it says this, it's God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. 
Recently, John Piper has written a, a large book on providence. Some of you may have it or are working your way through it like me. But he makes a distinction in that book between sovereignty and providence. Piper defines God's sovereignty as his right and power to do all that he decides to do. He is God and he may do whatever he decides to do. That's Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But then he defines God's providence as his wise and purposeful sovereignty. So take his control and add wisdom and purpose and goodness. So it's not just that he has control over all things, but he works all things together according to those wise purposes. And God reveals himself this way, for example, through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, he says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Bible is showing us this very God. There is none like him. And he is the main mover, the main actor in Genesis 37 to 50. And he is acting in a very dysfunctional family, a family that is completely messed up. It's marked by hatred and jealousy and sin. God is going to work through in and through that family to bring glory to his name. One way to title this section would maybe be the, trans, the transformation of the sons of Israel through God's providential grace. He's going to change and transform Jacob's sons through his grace, through his providential grace. He's going to keep the covenant that he made with Abraham. He's going to protect and save his people. And he's going to do it all through a man who is going to be hated and rejected, presumed dead, he's not really dead, and exalted to rule. And so in this section of Genesis, we're going to be looking at the prelude to the salvation of the world. That's what's happening in Genesis 37 to 50. And I wonder if you believe that God is both sovereign in control and good this morning. Do you believe that? That right now, he is arranging the events in not just our country, in the world, but in your life. He's arranging those events with a purpose, a good purpose. Do you trust those purposes? Not just understand that in your mind, but do you trust God and his purposes that he's working in and through you even now? Because we're going to see a, re a rejection, clear rejection of God's purposes in our passage this morning. A jealous hatred, a recoiling instead of a joyful submission to God's plans. We may be asking those questions even this week from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they take counsel against the Lord's anointed? Maybe up to this point in your life, you've never actually considered or thought that your life was ordered by a sovereign, good God, not chaos or, or luck or chance. And the Bible gives us much more than that. It gives us the truth. It gives us God, both sovereign and good. And my prayer is that he would meet with us this morning as we look to his word. We're going to, as I said, break chapter 37 down into two sermons. 
And today we're going to look at verses really 2 to 11, which is really all about Joseph being hated by his brothers. That's what this sermon is going to be about. Joseph is hated by his brothers. So get excited for that. And then next week, we're going to see how his brothers sell him into slavery. Okay, so that's the next two weeks as you prepare. We're going to walk through the passage this morning under three headings. If you want to jot these down, we're going to look at three kind of aspects at work in this story. This is a little bit of an introduction into this chapter, introduction to this last section of the book. We're going to think about a promise. Number one, promise. Number two, providence. And number three, pattern. You're welcome. They all start with P. Promise, providence, pattern. Friends, God always accomplishes his purposes. And we're here this morning because those purposes involve redemption of sinners to his glory, bringing them back to himself to know him and love him. Glory be to God. And so let's look at our first, our first heading, promise. Promise, number one. And the main promise that we're, we've seen so far in Genesis, God go back to again and again, is the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there, but just let me read it to you to refresh your, your memory. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've used the, the words land, seed, and blessing to summarize that promise. That promise ends up being kind of enshrined as a covenant in chapter 15 and then sealed with circumcision in chapter 17. And we're at the point now in Genesis where we're beginning to see this promise clearly bearing fruit, clearly being fulfilled. And so we saw, if you remember the list of Jacob's 12 sons back in chapter 35, that abundant blessing that has come to him now finally through the bearing of children, which would point to the promise of that one seed that would come to bring hope and reverse the terrible effects of sin and death on the earth. Then look at the way this chapter begins. Again, in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, really, verse 1 of chapter 37 goes more with chapter 36 than 37. It's, it's a direct comparison, if you remember, with Esau, who settled in the land of Seir that was outside of the promised land. And so God has blessed Jacob by comparison with great prosperity, and now he's dwelling in the promised land. With abundant seed, all these sons, these 12 sons that we saw listed. So we might think that the promises are fulfilled, that we're, we've arrived. But there's another promise in Genesis, Genesis 15 that we need to be reminded of as well. Genesis 15, 13. And this is what we read there. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, so God has made a promise 
that the people of Israel are going to be enslaved by a, by a foreign nation, and he's going to deliver them to his glory. And so now we know Jacob and his family are here in the promised land, but we have the impression that they're not going to be there much longer. So how are they going to get to that foreign nation? Which nation? Uh, how's God going to rescue them? Who will be their deliverer? 400 years. And God said these things are for certain. What we're seeing in chapter 37 are these events being now set in motion. And as we'll see in in these verses uh, before us, it's going to take place through God's providence. And so that's the second heading that I want you to write down and think about, providence. The heading for this section there in verse 2 is these are the generations of Jacob. And as you know, as we've gone through Genesis, that's, a, that's the Hebrew word is toledot, a bookmark there that, that just points out kind of a, a new section in the book. But really the focus isn't going to be on Jacob, but on Jacob's sons and especially Joseph and Judah. And so verse 2 begins with an introduction of Joseph. And, and Genesis, Genesis 50, the very end of the book, ends with Joseph's death. Just, that's verse 26 of chapter 50. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the bookmarks for what we're going to see. And let's just see what we learn here about Joseph as, he, as he's introduced in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Okay? Here's our introduction of of Joseph. He's 17 years old. He's a shepherd of the flock. And and the ESV says he he was a boy. um, And that means something like lad or helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. And if you look on your screen, I think we have a picture, a reminder, there it is, of Jacob's family tree. And you'll see there highlighted the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. And, and you'll get a picture of, of who it is that Jacob, or that Joseph, rather, has been assigned to. Uh, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. These are the sons that were born to Jacob's, quote, lesser wives, unquote. The servants of Leah and Rachel. And just saying that reminds you how messed up this family is and how built-in tension and problems are uh, just to the situation. There's tension in the story before the story even begins. Jacob, if you remember, favored Rachel and Rachel's sons over Leah and Leah's sons. And if you remember, this came up really clearly in the, the assault on Dinah in chapter 34 when Jacob kind of stood by and did nothing which probably had a lot to do with Dinah's brothers than killing all the males in Shechem. So there's division and there's tension in this family already. And so when Joseph brings a bad report to his father about his brothers, you can just imagine how that goes over. The Hebrew term for report is tale. Okay, so think tattletale. It's always used in Scripture, this word, in a negative sense, and often it's used to give an untrue report. Now, we don't know if we have nothing here that would tell us that this this report was untrue, but Moses does use this adjective bad to describe it, a bad report, even translated evil. And so we're left to wonder, does that mean their actions were evil or is the report evil? Whether, Whether the report was true or not, I think if you're a parent, you know the difference between tattletaling 
and then one of your children actually seeking the spiritual good of the other by bringing about their sin to light. Parents, how often do you hear, mom or dad, I just want you to know, I've been praying about this. I'm concerned for the spiritual condition of my brother or sister. The fruit of their life does not line up with the fruit of the spirit. And I think you should know that they have hit me. My prayer now is that you would discipline him or her for their good and that they would repent and turn to Jesus. Is that the regular experience that you have? No. Typically, you see brothers and sisters wanting to get their siblings in trouble for their own purposes. That seems like the feel of what Joseph is doing here. And the context is his brothers already don't like him. They already saw him as the favorite son, and they hated him even more because of it. And what we're going to see is just a building of hatred. They're going to hate him more and more as the story goes on. Uh, First, because of this tale that he tells on them, but more fuel is thrown in the fire. There in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now we've seen that phrase, son of his old age, before. It was used in Genesis 21 to describe Isaac uh, when he was born in Abraham's old age, which connects Joseph, I think, to, to Isaac as perhaps the son of the promise. Now Joseph is not sinless, um, We're going to say a lot of positive things about Joseph, but he's not sinless. But I want to lay a lot of the blame, and we've done this before, humanly speaking, for the tension and rivalry in this family just at the feet of Jacob. Again, we see his favoritism. Again, we see his partiality come up. This is a generational sin now. We have seen it in multiple generations in his family. It started with his own dad, with Isaac, who loved Esau more than Jacob, And his mother, who loved him more than Esau. And then Jacob, who loved Rachel more than Leah. And now he transfers that favoritism to Joseph, Rachel's son that came later in his old age. And the love that he shows for him is not subtle. He gives him a gift that he does not give to his other children. This has come to be known as the coat of many colors, But if you're looking at the ESV, you probably have a a footnote there that that says this is most likely maybe translated as a coat with some kind of long sleeves, maybe an ornamental ornamental coat um, that would signify royalty. So if you're in the palace, you don't need short sleeves because you're not doing work. You don't have to roll up your sleeves so you can have a longer sleeved robe. And and so it's pointing to Joseph being set apart, perhaps even in, in a royal sense. But can you imagine how much trouble this would have caused? Every time he walked around and showed up with his coat on, his brothers are looking at him, rolling their eyes, and and hating him all the more, reminded of their father's favoritism. I mean, just look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They had no peace with him. They couldn't be civil with him. It's like they couldn't even be in the same room together. But then it gets even worse. So we've got the evil report. We've got the favoritism in the coat. And now we have the dreams. Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And when we've seen dreams and visions so far in Genesis, uh, they have mainly been, up to this point, direct revelations of the Lord or his representative to one of the, the patriarchs. 
Uh, here, the dreams are going to be a little bit different, kind of from here on out. These are like events that happen, circumstances that happen. And so you kind of wonder, if you're the brothers, hey, is this your ego talking or is this God? We're not really sure. Uh, but, but we're going to see a, a, a difference in the way that these are, these are played out. So let's, let's see the, the content of the first dream there in verse 6. He, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold... My sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And as we'll see in Genesis, uh, these dreams prove to be prophetic messages from God. And so what we're going to see is the brothers rejecting God's purposes. His brothers said to him, verse 8, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they're not bowing their knee to this message. They're hating and rejecting the messenger, who's going to ultimately turn out to be their only hope. But they hate Joseph because he tattled, because he was Jacob's favorite son, and now because of these dreams. Dreams are coming, are gonna, we're going to see come in pairs in Genesis. And, and Joseph understands that to mean that God is fixing his purpose in them and that his purposes are ripening. And so later he's going to tell Pharaoh, who's going to also have a pair of dreams, Genesis 41, 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So what we'll notice here that this dream doesn't necessarily need uh, an interpretation. Everyone understands what it means. These bundles of wheat or, or whatever they may be represent Joseph's brothers. They're going to bow down to Joseph's sheaf. This language of bowing down reminds us of the, the promise that, that Isaac gave to, to Jacob that his brothers would bow down to him. And really it's picturing Joseph as a king over his brothers. And we know that God had promised to Abraham and Jacob, that kings would come from him. And so this is making that royal robe a little bit more clear that God is revealing Joseph is going to be like a king and his brothers are going to bow down to him. And that's exactly how they understand it. So what is God saying here through these dreams? What are his purposes? Well, let's look at the second dream, verse 9. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. You kind of wonder, should he have kept these to himself? When he starts to see how they're, they're well, that's something for us to think about. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11, 11 stars were bowing down to me. Think about just the scope of what he's saying. The first dream, what's the context? The earth. Second dream, what's the context? The heavens. Is God pointing to a king of the heavens and the earth, a king of creation? Joseph is, is shown here, he, he, he's making an audacious, audacious claim. But the message is really clear. His family, Jacob's family, is, is going to bow down to him, not just his brothers, but his parents as well. And this is too much for Jacob even to handle. Verse 10 when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. 
and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So it seems that the sun and the moon represent Jacob and and Rachel or perhaps Leah. And the 11 stars represent Joseph's brothers. Who do you think you are? But notice, even though he rebukes him, Jacob does not discount the dream. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Jacob has an experience, doesn't he, of a younger sibling, a younger brother being chosen by God to rise to prominence over his older brother. The brothers here we see are jealous. That word jealous in Hebrew, kana, sounds a lot like Cain. And we're about to see the brothers act a lot like Cain. And we wonder, are they going to do what he did to his brother, who was also a shepherd? We'll stay tuned for that for next week. But these are the inner workings of the 12 tribes of Israel and of Israel himself. Jacob comes across as a man who is ruled by his emotions ruled by his desires. He is not being a stabilizing anchor in his family. He is being a wrecking ball. So, beloved, we ought to step back and think through that and and be reminded that Christ died for us, that we might not be ruled by our emotions and desires, but by him and by his word. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. By the power of the Spirit, putting selfishness and self to death, focusing on the needs of others. Paul talks about making your body your slave instead of being a slave to your flesh. It's all done through God's grace. And so so mere discipline rooted in your own will will only take you so far. We We can do a lot of things, get up early and eat right and do those things and not be Christians. But here we're talking about a focus on God's program for the world, not mine. God's kingdom, not my kingdom. God's strength, not my strength. God's people, even when those people are hard to love, even when those people disappoint us and let us down. God's agenda, making disciples, serving instead of being served, that heart comes from Jesus Christ. That heart comes from the Holy Spirit working in us. Denying yourself is not for the Christian all-star team. It is for every believer. It is what makes you a believer. Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, anyone, and take up his cross and follow me. And when we do that, beloved, fruit of following Jesus is life for those around us. Not strife, not hatred, not jealousy. It's love and service, not making much of ourselves. And it's joy. It's real joy, not not empty flashes of, of pleasure. And so the brothers here hate Joseph because they want to rule. They want to be exalted. They are jealous. Jacob wants what he wants. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And we've seen that. But what about what God wants? What about God's agenda? That's what matters most. That's what's guaranteed to come to pass. Even if it comes through the rejection and brokenness of Jacob and his family. 
We ought to be reminded as we think about our own circumstances that God is a sovereign, good God working in and through all those events in our lives. His purpose is being brought to pass. And so we see that providence working in and through this. Even though it's through these dreams and jealousy and hatred, God is working things together for his good and to a particular pattern that we're going to mention here as we close. The last The last heading that we'll mention is pattern that we see repeated over and over in Scripture. Now, beneath that pattern is the prophecy that we've seen already happen through through these dreams. And that prophecy is very specifically fulfilled in the book of Genesis. Joseph is going to be rejected by his brothers. Then he's going to be exalted as the ruler of all Egypt. Joseph himself says as much. He's going to be in Genesis 45. He says, God has made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's placed Pharaoh, he's he's second in command to, to Pharaoh, or you might say at his right hand, Genesis 41. And his brothers are going to come and bow down to him repeatedly and eventually gladly. Chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 50. And they finally see him, not as their little bratty brother, but as their deliverer. And friends, this is the pattern intended by God for us to see and understand that it's repeated and ultimately it culminates when the the curtain drops with a baby being born in Bethlehem. But there are many connections between Joseph and Daniel, for example. Daniel wasn't in Egypt, but he was in Babylon. But he was also displaying the wisdom of God. He interpreted dreams for his kings and would not be compromised by temptations uh, from the empire. Both Daniel and Joseph were thrown in jail for their obedience and eventually exalted by God as rulers of the nations. There are connections between Joseph and Israel and the book of Exodus, Just as Joseph is in bondage in Egypt before his deliverance, so is Israel. Like Joseph, Israel would endure a time of testing and preparation for redemption. And in the end, his release and Israel's exodus show that God is supreme over the gods of Egypt. Think about Moses himself. If you look at Exodus 3 verse 1, you don't have to turn there, but it's the same language of of shepherding a flock. Moses was shepherding the flock uh, when God came to him, he was pastoring a flock. Moses was sent away by his own people to Egypt and eventually became Lord in Egypt under Pharaoh. But he sought to save his brothers and then was rejected into the wilderness. And God used that rejected one to deliver the people and be exalted over Egypt. Remember David, the youngest of his brothers, a shepherd who was despised by his brothers and then exalted as king. You, you get the idea. There's a, there's a pattern here. The rejected of God's chosen deliverer through the unbelief of his family, his brothers, his kinsmen, that would ultimately lead to their deliverance. So in Genesis 37, we're going to see a father send his most loved son on a mission, look there in verse 13, he sends him on a mission to his brothers. And when he does find them, they decide they want to kill him because they're jealous and hate him. But they end up throwing him into a pit, handing him over to non-Israelites to be made a slave. But to Jacob, he's thought to be dead. There's a, a false report about his death, but he wasn't dead. He was actually alive. 
And not alive only, but he would be exalted, exalted to the right hand of power, where he would rule over not just Israel, but the the nations, over the Gentiles. But what would he do with that power? He would use it to save others and extend forgiveness to those that had wronged him. Does anyone recognize that pattern, that story? I think Luke recognizes it when he records Mary's reaction to the angel's proclamation to the shepherds about Jesus' mission. When he is to be born, you read in Luke 2, verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That sounds a lot like very similar language to Jacob's response to Joseph's dreams. He kept the saying in mind. Is Luke trying to make a connection for us and for his readers to think of Joseph as he narrates Jesus' birth. That, that, that word there in verse 7, when, when Joseph, his sheaf arises, it arose. It's the same word in Numbers 24, verse 17, where we read, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. And break down the sons of Sheth. Friends, all this is pointing to the salvation that God would accomplish in Jesus Christ. This is Christ's mission. Sent by the Father, rejected by his own, turned over to the Gentiles. They thought they had defeated him, thought he was destroyed, but death could not hold him. He rose from the grave. He is alive after dying to take the penalty of our sins. And now he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And he extends forgiveness to all those that sinned against him. He calls us to repent of our sin and to put our trust in him. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the the fulfillment of of this pattern. The pattern points to a person. It points to Jesus Christ. And just like in Joseph's life, it was God working all these things together, even the rejection of Jesus for the salvation of his people. Peter reminds us in Acts chapter 4, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So friends, we're studying the blueprints of that plan, that message, as we look to the end of this section in Genesis. We're going to see the same God working in the same powerful, providential ways. So much so that Joseph can say things like this in Genesis 45, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you, for you are remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here to Egypt, but God. Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God He meant it for good, to bring about the many people that should be kept alive that they are today. So friend, how will you respond to God's word to you today? How will you respond to Jesus, the one who has come to redeem us, to save us? He was rejected and falsely accused and crucified and buried. But now, Paul says, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the true king. 
the king that rules and reigns, the king that saves. So everyone come to him, submit your life to him, trust his wise and kind providence in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us, and we're excited to look to that word in the coming weeks as we continue to see your plan unfold, and we pray that you would show us more and more of yourself, and Lord, as you do, that you would encourage us and help us by your spirit to turn away from trusting in ourselves, to turn away from putting everything on our shoulders to make sure everything in our life is situated in the right way. And when it's not, Lord, to give in to despair and even to run and turn away from you. Lord, we want to lay down our, our semblance and thought of control and completely submit our lives over to you, to your wise and good providence and care for us. And we pray for your help to do that, and we pray that as a congregation we would encourage one another in that, and that we would point one another to Jesus in the ways in which we, we live, the words in which we say to counsel each other. We pray that you would bring about good fruit in our relationships, Lord, and our witness to this community. We pray that Christ would be exalted here and in southwest Houston and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.